If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one there on the seat by you. We've been going through Ephesians chapter 2 for the last month, basically, and we're going to depart from that and go over to Matthew chapter 7. We're going we're gonna to take a little double take. Have you ever heard that phrase before, kind of a double take, or as when you were a kid, your parents told you to look both ways, right, before crossing the street, kind of to make sure that you're really going in the right direction. It reminds me of several years ago when I was playing basketball and intramurals in college. Now, if you've never seen an intramural college game, you have not lived. Because what happens in intramural ball games is you have guys who'd rather be on the real team but aren't, but they still have a higher level of competitiveness. So so it's, it's very entertaining. Here's what happened. First play after the break at halftime. Sean Tanner is inbounding the ball. I tried to, I, I put a move over here, you know, where I said, wow, look at your mom. And then I took off this way. And then, uh, and then he passed the ball to me and there was no one between me and the goal. So I just dribbled and went down and, and made a layup. And it, it was kind of that you turn around and you look at the guy who gave you the pass and you, you just kind of point at him, right? There's like two, two types of pointing, right? After the game, the athletes, I mean, he can be nine foot four, 580 pounds of pure muscle, but he'll say, I love mom. You know, I mean, they do that. And also, if there's a good pass or a good move, it's like mutually accredited man points. It's like, dude, good pass. But then I noticed that Sean didn't really give me the point back, and people in the crowd were laughing. It was at that moment I realized a very important aspect of basketball. At halftime, you change sides. And it's really hard to look cool when you just scored two points for the other team. Then, all right, cool. And I look back on that and I say, you know what? That's kind of like a lot of us in relationship to Christ. We think that we're going one way and we say, well, I'm saved and I'm born again and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But really... It's good to come back to the Scripture and take a double take and ask the question that if you want to write this down on your notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Now he's talking to a group of church people, a group of Christians, a group of people who know God's Word. So why would the Apostle Paul ask people who are involved in Christianity to have a double take and really examine to see if you're in the faith. So, if you want to go with me to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to begin to read there in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And ravening is a word that means having an insatiable appetite ready to destroy at will. Verse 16, ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Thistles are like, you know, heavy-duty thorns. And verse 17, even so, every tree brings forth, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth 
evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn or cut down and cast into the fire. Jesus repeats it in verse 20. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils or or demons? Like done exorcisms? Kind of freaky, isn't it? And in your name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess or I will declare, I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. Father, we ask that you'll give us wisdom this morning. This is a very tough passage. You give us the ability through your Holy Spirit to look inside and you to examine us to see if we really are in the faith. And at the end of this message, you'll save people, lost church members people who have been away from you for for many years, those who just came in here for the first time in a long time, we ask that you would work. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just be very honest with you guys this morning. This is a very tough passage of Scripture. Isn't it? I, I, I mean, here's this is Jesus Jesus is, is going through the Sermon on the Mount. This is like his, his, his crescendo, like the last part. It's like the dynamics of the song when it gets really intense, when it's about to end. And he says that there's actually going to be lots of people who think that they're going to heaven, but then when they walk through the door of death, they realize that they've made a terrible mistake. Now just, just step back for a minute and imagine... That being the case, you live your life, you, you, you think, right? Actually really believe that you're saved and born again and going to heaven, but you're really not. I mean, can we all kind of agree together this morning that that, 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 that scenario, that situation would be one of the most terrible things in, ever, right? I mean, to really think that you're going to heaven when in reality, you're not going to heaven, but you're going to hell whoa and this is jesus so i'm just going to give you guys forewarning this is a very tough very convicting a very uncomfortable passage so what i'm going to ask you to do with me today is don't pray for other people or family members who are here or not here i want you to just ask the lord say lord would you examine me And if I'm really saved, would you help me to know today if I'm really saved for real? Like that, really saved for real? Kind of a little redundancy there, get the picture. But Lord, if I'm not, would you show me now so that I can get saved now rather than experience something else later on? Bailey Smith asked Billy Graham one time, he said, Dr. Graham, why do you spend so much time talking about lost church people? If you've ever heard Billy Graham, a lot of times he talks about people who are in church, 
but are not actually on their way to heaven. And here's what Dr. Graham said. He said, number one, here's the reason why I talk so often about people who are in church but are not truly saved is because I was a lost church member. 1934, Billy Graham was the president of his youth group. Now, I don't, I don't know if they had like runoffs back then. This is way back in the day if you had like vice president, you know, Congress, Nancy Pelosi. I don't know how that worked, you know, within the youth group. He was the president of his youth group. And he was there. And a preacher named Mordecai Ham. what a name. I mean, if, you, if your son's name is Mordecai Ham, he's either going to be an ultimate fighter or a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I mean, or both. I mean, man, this guy could preach. And, and Mordecai Ham, he was preaching. And, and Billy Graham's up here in the choir. He's in the choir on the back row. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to Billy Graham as a teenager and told him, you're in church, you're actually a church member, but you're not truly born again. So Billy Graham got up when the invitation was given and he came and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. So Billy Graham said the reason why I talk about it so often because I was one. And secondly, he said, and I'm going to quote this right, the greatest mission field is the church role. Like that list that has everybody who's a member of the church. Billy Graham says, within America, that is the greatest mission field. You're like, man, Jeff, how could it be that if someone is a member of a church but might not really be saved? Well, one example would be John Wesley, the guy who helped found the Methodist church. He came over to the penal colony of Georgia. If there are any of you who your college team plays against the Bulldogs, you can remind them, and it was a penal colony to begin with. State of Georgia. Then they can respond, you know, the grace of God exceeds in great sin. So anyway, um, y'all okay? Any Georgia fans here? All right, moving on. So John Wesley, he came to Georgia, and he said, I came to convert the heathen, meaning the American Indians, he began to preach the gospel. He said, I came to convert them, but he realized that I myself was not converted. See, man, how did John Wesley, he, he had like degrees in Bible, and he's on this boat coming over. Now, let's just sit, uh, let's just all kind of confess together that our grandparents, most, I've got some Indian in me, most of them who came from Europe, you had to have a lot of guts. I mean, to get in a little bitty boat and cross a big ocean without GPS, without cell phones, without any tracking system. So he's on this boat, and it's like him, some sailors, and a bunch of German Moravian Christians. And in this terrible storm, John Wesley said, I was frightened for my life. He was terrified because it was almost like the boat was going to go down. And then he noticed in a little corner of the boat, there were these German Moravian Christians who were singing hymns. Now, Wesley didn't say this, but most people would think, if the boat's about to go under and you're singing hymnals, what are you smoking? I mean, that just does not go together. But they realized that their life was in the hands of God. So Wesley came and he asked the preacher, he said, how do you have such peace? And the pastor said, well, because Jesus Christ is my Savior. Is He yours? And, and Wesley had never been asked this question. He said, well, I believe that Jesus is the Savior. And the pastor said, but is He your Savior? Ha Check this out. Has He saved you? And Wesley had no answer 
to that question. So it was a long process. He began to search God, and finally he was truly born again. Then he went back to England and all over America and began to preach to church people. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. It doesn't matter what happened. You could be baptized in any form, but that doesn't mean that you're saved. And guess what happened? The church people got mad at him. So here's what happens most often. When a preacher or someone who loves you comes alongside and they explain, like from Matthew chapter 7, you've got to really make sure that you've been saved for real. There's two reactions. One is to be convicted of your sin if you're lost and to get saved, and the other is to get mad. Now notice how Jesus breaks this down, though. He breaks this down by beginning. It's like Jesus is putting a warning label here in verse 15. Notice what he says, beware of false prophets. Now, who is a false prophet? Well, if you want to write this down in your notes as well, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, basically the whole passage, he walks through and shows characteristics of false teachers. Here's three main characteristics. Number one, is this teacher or preacher, whether they're on television or in a local church, are they doing it for money? Are they trying to build their own bank account or are they trying to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? Everybody okay? I mean, ask yourself the question, is this, is this supposed Bible teacher trying to get money from me so that he can be rich, or is he trying to help me direct my money into bringing the gospel to people who are lost? So one aspect of a false prophet is that they use the Bible to get money. Secondly, is that they use it to get power. Is this person using the Bible as a tool to twist and control people with? instead of explaining the Bible so that people can be saved and then get free. Amen? I mean, when you get saved for real, you get freedom. You are freed from your sin. You're freed from the fear of death. So is this person concerned about power? And one way to, to look at that it would be, is this person trying to lift them out, themselves up to be looked at as special? Or are they trying to lift up Christ? Another way of looking at it is uh, a false teacher is all about pleasure. This is heavy in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Does this teacher or preacher, please hear me, do they sugarcoat the message so that people will feel good about their sin? Or do they just explain the gospel and even if people get offended, are they willing to let people get offended rather than sugarcoat something? A little sugar makes the what the, the medicine go down. But within biblical preaching, if you put sugar in the mix, it will water down the message. And there's a lot of places throughout America today, and the message is watered down. And notice how Jesus explains this further. Beware of false prophets, for they come to you in what? In sheep's clothing, but inwardly they still have the nature of a wolf. See, Jeff, man, how is Jesus telling us to tell the difference between a saved person in church and a lost person in church? Well, the point is that at first they all look the same. They have the clothing of a sheep. But Jesus says after, I mean, eventually, if you've got the nature of a wolf, it's going to come out. Here are some characteristics. A hypocrite, 
within the church who's not really saved will decimate the church through their personal agenda. For example, if a person is not saved but they're a part of a church, they will not forgive. They won't forgive. Now, now what is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is the final form of love. That, 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 that is the final way that we express that we truly have love. So um, it was like a, a man I knew growing up and he was involved in a church and he says, I will not forgive that family under no conditions. I will not forgive them. You know what Jesus would say throughout the New Testament? If you do not forgive, you've not experienced love because you can't give what you don't have. And the Bible says that God is love. So if you don't forgive, then it's very clear evidence that you've never met God. Do, are, do you have a forgiving spirit? And the way this happens a lot of times in church, and man, if you're not, if you're not saved here this morning, this is like your first time in church, or if you're just coming back, I just want to be very honest. I don't know if any preacher has ever said this, but if you think that Christianity is what you see in the lives of some church members, I'm not surprised that you're not a Christian. In fact, if that's Christianity the lives of most church members in the U.S., let me just be very honest. I don't want to be a Christian. Very quiet. But here's the point. The lives of people within the church who refuse to forgive, who have a personal agenda, who it's all about them, and they don't care about the lost, that person is in fact spoken of by Jesus. So in reality, their lives don't contradict the gospel so much as confirm the gospel because Jesus said there will be those who look like a sheep, but give it time and they will show that they have the nature of a wolf. Kind of like Rick Warren's opening line in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. Well, it says, what's it say? It's not about you. Well, a lost church member says it's all about me. It's all about my needs and it's all about my happiness. Have you ever noticed with wolves, wolves always go in packs, don't they? A wolf will get in a pack and within a church, it's almost, it's very eerie how weird this is. You get a negative person. This is heavy. Everybody okay? We all the same? You good? Nice and a lot of tension in here. It's like you get a person who's very negative. They don't like something that's going on. We're not talking about, you know, the preacher is not preaching the gospel or you have sin in the church. We're not talking about that. But just something that they don't like because it's not about them. They will go find other negative people. I mean, haven't you seen this? It's like, it's like there's this like negative meeting that happens without a negative meeting being called. It's like the lost church members have a radar for one another. So it's like you get this collection of people who Jesus says, on the outside, you look like you're saved, but your nature of a wolf is to destroy. And that's why you have so many church splits. That's why you have problems in churches. That's why when some of you try to go invite your friends to come to church, they say, which church is that? It could be Rocky Mount. It could be any of these churches. And they say, well, I know people who go to that church. If you say, you know what? Jesus talked about those people and He said on the day of judgment that they, they will experience judgment, but don't let them keep you out of heaven. It's a very... It has so much irony because He says inwardly they are ravening wolves. Transfer growth. 
This is what happens most of the time. Are we saying that people who change churches are lost? No. But what happens so often in churches is people will get offended by a pastor or a group within this church and they'll say, well, I'm going to change churches. I'm quitting the church. And if you're saved, you can never leave the church. Because the church is not a specific group like Rocky Mount or Franklin Heights or First Baptist Church of Woodstock. It's every born-again true believer in Jesus Christ. So what happens though, we they leave the church, right, and have unforgiveness and bitterness towards this person, and they simply bring that to a new place. That's why, man, when I pastored in Georgia, from the pulpit I would discourage transfer growth. Now, God did bring us many people from other churches. And if God is bringing you from another fellowship, I encourage you to pray. Not one time. Pray continually. I encourage you to take at least a day and fast. I encourage you to practice Matthew chapter 5. And if your brother offends you, or if you have a problem with your brother, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember, your brother has something against you, go to your brother and be reconciled with them. Go work out the problem. Go to that person and say, you have offended me and here's why. And then, once that has been worked out, then say, Lord, do you still want me to go to Rocky Mount or go to another church? But what happens most of the time, you take people who are bringing loads of bitterness to different churches. And we wonder why we have problems. There's one guy I knew in Georgia, and he came to our church, and, and I said, well, man, why, why are you visiting? He said, well, I used to do the, the, the yard work at this other church, and, uh, and the pastor's wife one time said, hey, do you mind cutting this strip over here? And he said, who was she to say that to me? I'm never going back. I'm coming to your church. I was like, dude, I don't want you to join this church. I told him that straight up. Why? Because the man had a root of bitterness with the previous pastor's wife. So why do I want somebody coming over here bringing a bunch of baggage when if they are saved, they're supposed to repent of it and get right with this person and then if God wants them to come, they can come. But what we've done is some churches were so desperate to get people were like, we'll, br we'll bring your disobedience to Christ, bring your rebellion to the Word of God to this church and we expect God to bless that? Man, y'all, this is, you could cut this with a knife. But that's what happens, doesn't it? And once again, we're not saying that God never moves upon people to change churches. But if God is moving upon you to do that, or if you've been here for 20 years, 15 years, 100 years, and you remember your previous church, and you got somebody there, and they're still alive, and you say, I've got a problem with them, the Bible says the gospel motivates you to go work out the problem. Because you'll never experience freedom in Christ if you do not forgive. First warning label. Jesus says, beware of imitations. Second warning label, verse 16. If there's no life change, there's no lordship. Notice what Jesus says. You shall know them by their fruits. Now this word know here, man, if we could translate it into modern English, it would be to identify, to ID, to thumbprint. Jesus says, without a doubt, you will know 100% them by their fruits. Now notice, notice the, the illustration. He says in verse 16, do men gather grapes from thorns? Uh, people are like, no. 
and further. Or figs from thistles. Uh, no, Jesus, that people probably want. Like, is, is he insulting our intelligence here? Is, is he really asking us, do the, does this come from this? But Jesus says simply that it's not our words that define what we are, but it's our actions that align with our words. For example, if a person says, I'm saved, but throughout the church, and please understand, man, I'm not cussing when I say this. I should be gut level honest. They raise hell in the church. That's what happens. Because they have the nature of a wolf. You have to ask yourself the question. When Jesus is talking about this, He's saying that you don't get bad fruit from a good tree and you'll get good good fruit from a bad tree. How in the world does a person claim to know Christ if they're within the body of Christ, the local church, and they do nothing but cause problems? You claim... Guys, the reason why we're going through this is because Jesus said it and because I love y'all. I am your friend. That's why we go through this deeply uncomfortable subject of lost church members. Because Jesus would not be loving. And a lot of people look at this like, man, Jesus is really hardcore, like calling people bad trees and like thorns and like thistles. Hey, thistle thorn. I mean, is Jesus like calling names? Listen, Jesus seems to be very hardcore and having no mercy. But it's actually Jesus' mercy that He's saying, hey guys, take a double look at yourself. He's saying it's not what you just say. If you want to write this down, Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? If I'm really your Lord, you'll do what I say. If you really love me, you'll obey me. If you really follow me, you say you follow me, you will follow me. So if God is speaking to your heart this morning and you look back and you're like, man, I I don't think I'm really saved. Repent today, believe the gospel, and be born again. Jesus is too loving and salvation is too powerful for Jesus to come into a person's life and leave them unchanged. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 18. A good tree cannot bring forth Bad fruit. What he's saying is that it's impossible for your life to not match up with the gospel when you say it is. For example, um, when Jesus says good fruit, here are three fruits, evidences of a changed life in the New Testament. One would be Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, the fruit of repentance. That means a point in your life to where you are going in your selfish direction and you turn. To Christ. Question. Has there ever been a time to where you have repented? It means a change of mind that results in a change of action. If you haven't, the Lord Jesus wants to change your life today. Another fruit would be, if you want to go with me to Galatians chapter 5 in your Bibles, this is a very, very helpful passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. But the fruit... Of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Meaning that if God lives in you through the person of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to show evidence that the Holy Spirit is actually in control of your life. Question. 
If I ask your family, does the fruit of the Holy Spirit characterize your life, what would you say? What would they say? What would they say? What happens so often in church is that we, we go through these motions, but yet there's not anything to back it up. James chapter 2, verse 14 and 26, James says that if your faith doesn't have works, then it's dead. Like, man, that's, that's kind of crazy. So, I mean, for me to say that I've got faith in Jesus Christ, but if my life doesn't show that, then is the Bible really saying that there's nothing there? Yes. Then what kind of works? I do good deeds. Good deeds are not the same thing as good works. Good works is something that you do from a heart that has been transformed and changed. It's something that you do kind of like as an IOU and a thank you. Not to get saved, but you do it because you are saved. You see the difference? But so often, man, before I was saved, I came to church. I, did, I, I went on like, you know, youth trips and such. I went out to share the gospel. But I did it because if I did those things, it kind of made me feel better about myself than truly doing them out of a changed heart. And let me just say, man, um, what happened back in the 1950s, and this has been talked about by many directors of missions and many uh, great denominational workers. This is explained to me, this is what happened. In the 1950s, there's kind of this, this movement that says the way that you follow Christ is you come to church. Not so much you let Christ change your outlook, but you simply go to church. Well, what happened is that it degenerated many times into the gospel is simply helping you be a good person, right? You ever heard that before? Well, go to church, it'll help you be a good person. Guess what? If Jesus really didn't die from the dead, then I don't really care to go to church at all. Let me just go further, man. If, if Jesus didn't die from, or arise from the dead, then church is pretty much a lame hobby. Let, let's, just, let's just leave now. Let's go to the lake, man. Let's go to the beach. Let's go, let's go hunt something. Let's catch fish. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it's not just that I get to go to church. It's that I want to take church to my job and not, you know, like a certain style of music or, you know, standing up on like the desk at your job and start preaching at them, but take the gospel to people all around the world. And it's because of a changed heart. That's what Jesus says over and over again, that you must be born again. Notice what he says there in verse 20. He reemphasizes this and he says, wherefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. By their finances, you shall know them. By their time usage, you shall know them. By their love for people, you shall know them. By their patience with their family, you shall know them. By their vocabulary, you shall know them. By every aspect of their life, you shall know them. When I heard this, I didn't like it when the preacher said it. But God wouldn't let me go. Now Jesus is not teaching sinless perfectionism. Jesus is not saying that if you're saved, you'll never mess up. But what he's saying is that everything in your life, if you've been saved for real, is pushing you towards the gospel. The third warning label, verse 19 if God doesn't get glory from your, from your salvation, He'll get it from your destruction. Notice what He says. Every tree that brings forth not good fruit is cut down and it's cast into the fire. Now this right here, it, it parallels Luke chapter 13. 
when Jesus says that the reason for our existence is to repent and be changed. He gives two examples. One, people were murdered. He says, were the people murdered worse than everybody else who wasn't murdered? No. But unless you repent, you will perish. And then he gives another illustration of, of like this freak accident. This tower fell and killed 18 people. And he said, were those people who died in that freak accident any worse than the ones who lived? He said, no, but unless you repent, you will perish. Then he tells a story. Don't you love how Jesus just lays it out? That, by the way, that's the reason why a lot of people, it's not because they don't have the time, but they don't like reading the Bible because Jesus is so gut level honest. He, is, he said, Jesus, like a little review here, um, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. That's what Jesus says. And people read that, well, but brother Jeff, I was converted at a, no, 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 by their fruits you shall know them. So Jesus tells this story, right? And he says, there's this, there's this um, farmer and he's got these trees. And there's this one specific tree and it's not giving forth any fruit. He puts fertilizer there. He puts water. He, he cares for this tree, but it doesn't bring forth fruit. Then the owner of the vineyard comes and he says, you know what, let's, let, let's, let's cut this thing down. And then the guy who worked on the tree said, sir, give me a couple of years. Let me fertilize it more. Let me put more water into the root system. Give it time. And then, if it bears fruit, fine. But if it doesn't, then you can cut it down. You know what the point of Jesus is? And it ties directly in here. That the point of our lives is to be changed. And if our lives do not produce repentance, there's going to be a day, whether Jesus comes back in our lifetime or not, that there will be a day in which the Apostle Paul says, please hear me, this is not, not, not really popular, but he says there's a day appointed in which God will judge the world in righteousness. So the point for you and me is to reflect and say, have I truly been saved? There's some research done by George Barna about people who don't go to church. Here, here it is. Based on past studies of those who avoid Christian churches... One of the driving forces behind such behavior is the painful experiences endured within the local church context. Y'all ever had a bad church experience? Can I get a witness? Somebody who claims to know Christ, but you think that they are the devil incarnate. In fact... One Barna study among unchurched adults shows, check this out, check this out, that nearly four out of every ten non-church-going Americans, this is like anybody who doesn't go to church, 40% said that they avoid churches because of negative past experiences in churches, check this out, or with church people. <laughs> So it's like, it's like the whole ball of wax, man. They're like, man, I've been there. I've done that. And those people are a joke. And if you're honest and you're talking to somebody, you've got to say you're right. But the gospel's still true because the gospel changed my life. And let me tell you how. Finally, Jesus says, the fourth warning label, not everyone expecting to be saved will be saved. This to me is... Probably the most, I don't know how to say it any other, any other way than this. I'm just going to say it. This is the scariest verse in the Bible. 
But Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, what's it say? Doesn't just say Lord, it says Lord, Lord. And in and, and, and the original language, this is a participle which is a continuing of saying Lord, Lord. Lord, 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 Jesus, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, I know everything about you, Jesus. But Jesus is saying that there's not every person who says that He is Lord is actually going to be saved. Whoa! Now notice what Jesus, how He breaks this down. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That means go to heaven when you die one day. The Bible does not teach purgatory. It teaches that there's going to be one time. There's going to be uh, every person is going to die. And that's something, you know, we, we don't like to think about. But one day I'm, I'm going to die. I'm, I'll be 30 this month, so I'm pretty much over the hill. So maybe pretty soon. I mean, I'm going to die. You're going to die one day. And after that, the Bible says there's going to be the judgment. So Jesus says that just saying things about Jesus that are true doesn't get you there. But notice what he says, but he who does the will of my Father that's in heaven. What Jesus is not saying is that the people who are like, whoa, I want to do the will of God. Hey, I'm going to go out and start an orphanage. I'm doing the will of God. Jesus is saying that the person who has truly been born again knows God. We can't miss this. Jesus is saying that if you don't know God, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you've never been changed and born again, then you can't really do the will of God because you're trying to do the will of somebody, trying to do the desires of somebody you've never even met. That's why you got me like, like churches all over America doing stuff, like doing, like doing crazy stuff, like putting money in like crazy projects. I wish you would get into the time, like churches just like wasting money. You're like, dude, what are you doing? But how few churches across the U.S. are putting their money into foreign missions? And man, I just can't wait to get into a mission trip with you guys. Y'all ready for that? I mean, to go like in Franklin County, do outreach, go on visitation, take the gospel to India, all over the world, because that's God's will. Notice how Jesus sums this up. Many. So here's the final fact. Jesus is saying that many, please please catch this, many who are expecting to be saved will actually be lost. I mean, this is, this is, this is not interpretation. This is what Jesus says. Jesus is so amazing. Like Jesus is saying, there's gonna be Many. Now, Jesus, right? Jesus is the Son of God. Y'all say brilliant. King of kings, Lord of lords. Cause everything to being. He loves you and me. Jesus is so smart. He knows how many hairs are on your head. And for some of us, day by day, that number is decreasing dramatically. But Jesus knows everything. And how big of a number? You ready, thinkers? Go go on this, this trip with me. How big of a number? Must it be for Jesus to use the word many? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Notice in verse 21, they say, Lord, Lord. Verse 22, Lord, Lord. But we've not prophesied. They're saying, Jesus, we've preached about you. We've taught about you. We've sang about you. We've given out probably literature about you. But in Verse 22, it continues, and in your name cast out devils. Now this is a, we don't have time to break this down, but Jesus is actually saying 
crazy thought of the day that there's going to be people who show up to Judgment Day who actually did exorcisms who are not saved. I've never done an exorcism. I've been in some business meetings where I think there needed exorcisms to be done, but I've never done one. Remember one business meeting, man, they had this, this lady and she, was, um, she played some instruments sometimes and she, you know, she had like one of these PhDs, like Pentecostal hairdo. You know, she, she'd throw that head around like that, man. She stood up and she made her motion. She was just like giving it to people. And like we were looking around like, would, would you just, seriously, seriously? You know, she's just like giving a bad report about like in front of the church, like bad mouthing people. And I praise God for the bountiful blessings of God. When she tried to sit down, she was so <sighs> she tried to she got up and left. But when she got out, she caught her leg on the pew. And man, it was just like a red oak from California. Boom. I mean, splattered all over the place. And we just said, praise Jesus. Now, OK, is that mean? And in thy name, we've done many wonderful works. But then Jesus responds, I'll profess to them, I never knew you. Your church membership does not count. Your baptism is insignificant. The amount of money that you've given to charitable contributions to this church, what you've done in the name of Jesus, all matters zero if you don't know Him. And Jesus is saying with a loving heart, I want to know you. I want to change your life. I want to make you born again so that you can know Me. And I've seen people in church who have been members for years get up broken during an invitation and come down the aisle and say, I have been lost, but today Jesus is saved me. And you can tell a person who's been truly changed because they now know. Look, look at it again. Look at it again. Verse 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. This means lawlessness, selfishness. But what, wouldn't it be an awesome thing if today, if God has pointed back to your supposed conversion experience and said, you know what, you made a step towards me, but you've never been truly saved. And you know right now, if I ask you this question, where would you go if you died right now? And you don't have assurance. You're not sure. In fact, there's some of you that said, Jeff, man, through the course of this message, I think that that would be me. I would be in that crowd that Jesus would say, depart from me because of the fruit of my life does not compare with what the Gospel says must be in a person who's truly saved. Jeff, what do I do? Well, here's kind of, for me, I was, I was by myself. I told you guys this before. I wasn't even in church when I got saved. I got saved on a Monday. But when they gave the invitation on Sunday, I walked down and gave public recognition that Jesus had saved me. Because Jeff, what do I have to do? It's very simple. Right now, just say, God, let's just do this. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're a lost church member, if you've never truly been saved, and God has shown you that. And by the way, He has shown you that because He loves you. And because He cares for you and He wants you to know Him. Just tell the Lord right now, say, God, I've been lost. I am lost. Would you save my soul, Lord Jesus? 
Just ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to save you. If you're here today and you're like, man, I'm not a church member. I've never been baptized in any way, shape, or form. Just right now, the same thing. Everybody comes to Jesus the same way, and that's through repentance. You place your faith in Him. Just say, Jesus, would You save my soul? Just tell Him right now. Jesus, would You save my soul? If you're here today and man, you, you look back at a time in the past and maybe you were a child and you made a decision, but then later on you got saved for real and you got dunked when you were a kid, that first so-called baptism is not what the Bible calls believer's baptism. Say, Jeff, what must I do? You want to be not to be saved, but to be obedient to Christ. Just say, Lord, I will commit to put my baptism today on the right side of my salvation. When the invitation is given, just ask you to get up out of your seat and come down and say, Jeff, I want to be baptized. I want to get this thing right and get everything on the right side. We'll baptize you when, uh, when we can. And if you're here today and, and God has moved upon you to join this church, you have a clear sense that this is where you're supposed to be. There is no unresolved bitterness from a previous congregation. You say, today is the day that I step forward and obey the Lord. We ask you to come. But most of all, if you're struggling with whether to get saved today, Satan will tell you one thing. He won't tell you don't get saved. He'll just tell you do it tomorrow. But your choice right now, since none of us know how long we're going to be here, is your choice forever.